Welcome to The Roundtable, a threat intelligence and global security podcast from Intelligence Fusion. Each episode, members of the analyst team get together to talk about current geopolitical trends which we feel may be particularly pressing or relevant today. In today's episode, we are discussing food and fuel shortages. And of course, it goes without saying that these shortages are an incredibly broad subject. So I just want to say now in the introduction before we get started... We're just going to pick on a few case studies from around the world from our respective regions to use as examples to try and illustrate what we're saying as we go through. So today I'm joined by Viraj Patney, who is the analyst for the Africa region, and Aaron Arends, the analyst for the Americas region, two regions which have been affected in their own ways by the food and fuel shortages. And again, we'll go into detail in that as we go forwards, but it's it's, it's interesting to try and explore the differences between these two regions because I think every region has been affected in some way, shape or form. Just not all of them being impacted in the same way. So I'll get us started straight away then before before I go on too much longer. Um, first question we're going to speak about today then is which countries or regions do you think will be particularly hard hit by these food, food and or fuel shortages? So who wants to get us started? I think even before the Ukraine-Russia crisis, food supply in Africa was really taking a hit. Um, because of the shortage in fertilizer in the aftermath of COVID. And uh, after the Russia-Ukraine crisis and, uh, you know, the impact that this has had, I'd say the Northern African region and uh, the Horn of Africa region is really, uh, um, these are areas that I've been looking at for this sort of roundtable. And uh, I find that these are areas that we should probably be looking at in the next couple, in the next year, or depending on how long the crisis really lasts. <clears throat> and when looking at North Africa, um, so between 2016 and uh, 2021, um, North Africa imported about 30% of wheat um, from Ukraine and Russia. And uh, in North Africa, bread uh, is a cheap sort of staple food. And in the case of Egypt, uh, they import about 82% of wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and this was over between 2016 and 2021. So it's these are the countries that say, you know, such as Egypt and maybe in other countries like Tunisia, which are uh, worth paying attention to and which have been really, you know, badly sort of affected. Um, the Arab Spring was also started by bread prices, right? So is there something that you already see happening in countries like Egypt? in terms of civil unrest or protests? Well, I think you mentioned how uh, the, you know, the price of bread really uh, sort of drove the revolutions in some ways, uh, you know, in, in North Africa, especially uh, in Tunisia and Egypt. And uh, I think this is a concern for countries like Egypt. So they have looked at, you know, alternative supplies um, for wheat, I think from countries in Western Europe. I think they put out tenders. Um, but... This isn't sustainable. It's ex really much more expensive. Um, and it's also um, because of the poor economic situation, you know, in Egypt, in co countries like Tunisia, um, uh, you know, and the sort of high amount of debts that these countries have sort of accrued over the last couple of years. Um, I think it's had a much, it, it probably made these countries think much harder about, you know, where how they approach things in a more sustainable way in the future. But currently, I'd say in Tunisia, for example, uh, political tension has been increasing over the past few months, especially 
unemployment is high. Uh, it's about 40% for under 25s. And uh, the country's economic outlook is like, pretty uncertain at the moment. And food shortages are certainly causing anger. Um, there are large queues you know, uh, outside of bakeries, for example. So people are really struggling. And uh, the country's foreign currency reserves uh, are only enough to cover about four months of imports. Uh, but even before the Ukraine, Ukraine crisis, uh, there were ships carrying grain which were already stuck at, at ports because the government's uh, sort of inability to pay for these, uh, you know, pay for the cargo. Uh, and in the past, uh, as you mentioned, Aaron, um, the increase in the price of bread uh, and cereal products has led people to take to the streets. So I'd say that certainly even in the short term in a you know, country like Tunisia, um, there's a real risk of this happening. Uh, so in Egypt, uh, the annuals for imports uh, are expected to double in price um, because of the you know Russia-Ukraine crisis and the impact that that has had. So and, is there much sort of politics as to where they get their grain from? So for example, Egypt, would they be wanting to balance where they're getting their grain from between the USA and Russia? For example, maybe not Russia right now, but between the USA and other countries, or would they be, or are they very more interested in just buying from whoever's willing to offer? It's not a political statement. It's more of just a convenience um i I think it's more of a convenience Mm. side of it uh, you have to look at uh, because uh, you know the reason why they imported lots of grain and wheat from uh, russia and ukraine is what at least one of the like huge reasons is the logistical uh, aspect of it and it was a lot cheaper so you know if if uh, the likes of tunisia and the likes of you know egypt were to look at alternative supplies they're always going to be much more expensive uh, which is why I think a lot of these countries are also looking at internal solutions. So, Aaron, your region is obviously going to be very different to Viraj's region being the Africa region, you covering the Americas region. There's going to be a lot of different themes. I imagine this South America in particular, is, whilst geographically very, very far removed from Ukraine and Russia, I imagine mm-hmm. it's still, like everywhere else in the world, seen some form of impact. So how has it been impacted? And so I guess how is it different to what we're seeing in Africa, for example? Yeah, so... Um Fuel prices and, and food prices have gone up globally, so it, this also affects uh, countries in, in the Americas. Um, um, yeah, so countries in the Americas are further removed from the conflict, um, but um, prices of fuel and food have gone up globally, so they are also affected. Um, one example I can give you is Ecuador is currently experiencing nationwide protests because of the fuel prices. So there the fuel prices have doubled in the last two years. Um, I would say in, in, to generalize uh, the, Amer- the countries in the Americas more broadly, um, many of these countries have already experienced uh, a lot of economic hardship over the last you know, years, maybe decades sometimes. Uh, so this only makes the situation slightly worse. So for example, I just came back from being in Argentina for a few months and they have experienced inflation of between 40 and 50% for you know, the last years. So people have gotten completely used to this. You know, your restaurants change their menus every week. Um, nobody saves in pesos. They all save in dollars or cryptos, if, cryptocurrencies if they're bold enough to do that. But so now inflation rate has gone up to 60% in Argentina, which relatively speaking is mm. just slightly worse. Mm. Um, so I think in, in, in some ways... Um, countries in Latin America sort of can be seen as an example of 
what if what what happens if this goes on longer like what what are the consequences then and so besides these you know quite recent uh, more inflation and rising the price of fuel and, and food uh, there's also been longer term terms issues such as corruption um, a lack of social mobility that has led to protests in the last few years um for example, in Colombia, in, in Guatemala, in in a lot of countries, these have already led to protests. And not only protests, but also we've already seen the, the effect of these problems in the polls. So um, now most recently, Colombia elected a new president. But um, in, in, in the media, it's often explained as a, as a pink tide where a lot of countries in the Americas have voted for left-wing presidents. Um, so... I, I do think explaining it as a tide that covers all of the Americas is a bit simplistic because I think you should view every election in the context of a, s- a specific country. But I do think there are simple similarities between the countries in the Americas where they've all had this economic hardship for a few few years, sometimes decades. And I think the main a consequence of that is that now people are turning against whoever is the incumbent or the 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 ruling political elite. Uh, and yes, it has. It, it's true that a lot of countries have elected left wing presidents, but those countries also were ruled before by right wing governments. Mm. So if this is a uh, you know a trend that is towards left wing politics or just against whatever com- government is in power, especially during the pandemic, where I think. Countries in America have been harder hit by the pandemic than many others in the rest of the world. So whoever was in power during the pandemic, they had a really hard time to to stay in power. So, um, you know, this started in Argentina and Bolivia even before the pandemic. But now recently there have been elections in um, Chile, in um, well, Brazil is coming up, um, in Peru. And now in Colombia, so there there's a lot of countries that have newly elected um, left wing presidents, and I think this is alleviating some of the tension in society because now all these presidents come in with these big bold uh, promises. Mm. Um, so I do think it's kind of dampened the the tension in society that we've seen already before. But eventually, you know, these promises are usually to tackle really difficult issues like corruption, organized crime, uh, poverty. Um, and these presidents are coming in at a time where economic conditions are even worse. And they usually face like divided um, mm. legislatures. Uh, they, they have the opposition of most of the political elites in these countries. So it will be very hard for them to uh, keep, keep their promises. So the question is, how long will this last? Like, when will it boil over again once they eventually cannot keep their promises? So um, so I think we're already seeing this in, um, for example, Peru and Chile, who had recent elections. They both elected um, left-wing presidents who came, up, came in with bold promises again. Um, but this honeymoon phase is, seems to be already fading mm. and their popularity ratings are already dropping. Um, so yeah, it will be interesting to see where, how long this kind of honeymoon period will last in most countries. I've written a note down here actually before we started, and it's something that I think is really hard to quantify. But all I've written is a, a return to hardline politics question mark. 
And what I mean by this is something that I've sort of, it's very hard to quantify. It's very hard to sort of, I don't want to speak on anyone's behalf. And, but I think something we're seeing across the world, not necessarily region specific, is perhaps a, a feeling of reminiscence about previous governments when this wasn't an issue. Perhaps very mm-hmm. corrupt governments, very hardline governments, very uh, maybe even authoritarian. But people are almost reminiscing in some places about these previous governments because there's an element of, well, at least back then I didn't have to queue for bread. Or at least back then there was bread on the table, there was, there was water, there was running, there was heating, whatever. And something I've seen sort of hints at, I think, again, it's really hard to speak on anyone's behalf here, yeah. but something I'm seeing hints at, you know, in sort of reporting from various regions and also on social media is more like a lot of comments about, oh, we never had this in so-and-so's era. We never had this in so-and-so's era. And I think in every region, there's some form of reminiscence back, whether this be Europe, at least Africa, North Africa. It's, there's lots of different, I've seen a lot of people referring back to dictators in particular as well, like very authoritarian governments. Sounds like in the Americas, it's gone down a more left-wing route, I guess. But yeah. there's definitely, there does seem to be whichever government is in control now yeah, is, exactly. is up against the wall. So who, as you said, whoever then replaces them, they can they could maybe gain a lot of popularity simply by appeasement without any sort of long-term economic uh, economic projects. Yeah, I think populism has always thrived in mm, like exactly, bad yeah. conditions. So yeah. 100%, yeah. I think it's uh, we'll see more of a push out to far left, far right, or whatever side of the spectrum, I guess. Depends where yeah. you are. Okay, so for my own region, which is the Middle East region and the Central Asia region, I've chosen two prominent examples. There's plenty to go off, there's plenty to choose from, and there's even more in the East Asia region and South Asia region, such as Sri Lanka now. But I think if you're interested in Sri Lanka, we're putting out some content on Sri Lanka soon, so keep an eye on our channels for for something more specific about Sri Lanka. So the two examples that I've chosen are Central Asia and Lebanon. And I've chosen Central Asia more because it's a broader region and it highlights the impact this is going to have on an entire region rather than a specific country. So I'll start with uh, I'll start with Central Asia. So Central Asia is an interesting country, obviously, with it being landlocked. So its import routes are very uh, often very complicated and heavily reliant on other countries. So in particular, Russia, Central Asia has typically always fallen within the sphere of influence of Russia, particularly when it comes to imports. So the way the Central Asian uh, import of grain works is a lot of grain is in uh, Kazakhstan is a main exporter of grain within the Central Asia region. They export grain to their neighbours. And in turn, Kazakhstan imports its grain from Russia and it does this to cheaper grain from Russia to fill its domestic market and then it exports its own domestically produced grain. So what we've seen from the war in Ukraine is Kazakhstan, well, Russia restricted its uh, exports of grain for a period of time, which meant that Kazakhstan in turn chose to restrict its own exports because obviously Kazakhstan is more interested in feeding its domestic market than it is to then feeding someone else's. So Kazakhstan began to husband its resources and as a result, we saw the rest of Central Asia suddenly essentially to coin a phrase with the carpet pulled out from underneath them so what the what we've seen in what we've seen as a result is extent in, in a, similar to what you were saying Aaron about there's already pre-existing problems and you, you as well actually was there's pre-existing problems in Central Asia particularly with food shortages and this has been a case in Turkmenistan for a number of years and recently more recently still we've just had a large drought in the Central Asia region so this decision to reduce the grain um, output from the grain exports from Russia has had these massive knock-on effects in Central Asia where there's already pre-existing issues which have so this is very much just a, a, another major issue on top of an already large issue and um, I think what this what this shows is it's not just each country obviously has its own has its own agendas each country has its own purposes but it comes has its own uh, agency but there comes a point when I think these countries are going to start giving up on their international uh, international agreements, their cross-border agreements, for example, when it comes to trade in order to feed their own markets. And that 
in itself is quite a worrying prospect for a region such as Central Asia, where they're heavily interdependent on each other for for imports and exports. And the second region I mentioned was Lebanon. And Lebanon has been in the news a lot, especially since the uh, port of Beirut explosion quite some time ago now. So in Lebanon, there's been, it's, I would say Lebanon is both fuel and food, uh, both fuel and food shortages have been su- substantial. So it's impossible to say which one is worse than the other. And Lebanon's, Lebanon's also seen its currency fail massively. So we've got a situation in Lebanon where the black market rate for the official black market rate for the Lebanese currency is substantially different to that what we see to the official rate and it is similar in central asia too with the black market rates differing heavily from the official rate and what this means is you get stores for example hoarding hoarding goods or as i've seen a few times in central asia a few reports about is stores refusing to sell goods at official rates instead they'll sell at black market rates which in some cases are 10 times higher than uh, than the official rates because the official rates are often unchanged or just don't, simply just don't reflect the situation so these two regions are quite interesting examples of where where we have uh, sh- shortages and what this may lead to. Because in Lebanon, we've seen extensive social unrest. I mean, we've seen almost daily protests on the streets and what have you, whereas in Central Asia, much less so with, uh, albeit with some notable, notable differences, which we'll talk about later. So we've introduced the regions that we're going to talk about. We'll probably drop some more in as we go, just to provide a bit more, a few more case studies, I guess, as we move on. So next, I want to get on to the more detailed part of it the more uh, nitty-gritty i guess and this is what could we see happen in these regions and elsewhere maybe what could we see happen in these regions and uh so short-term impacts long-term consequences short-term consequences etc so viraj i'll let you start as uh, i think your region could be quite interesting for this yeah so um you you know you previously mentioned how drought and you know the climate crisis is also impacting the situation in the middle east um and i think in the horn of africa this is something that uh, you know the the Ukraine Russia crisis has really exacerbated because in the Horn of Africa we've seen uh, you know prolonged drought um, and I suppose in the short term you know in countries like Somalia uh, at the moment there are like six million people in need of critical uh, human humanitarian support and uh, if you look at the region as a whole it's about twenty three million people that uh, are suffering from severe hunger uh, so these are in countries like Ethiopia Kenya Somalia. I'm sure the figure is also high in Sudan. And uh, on top of this, uh, rain has been really scarce uh, during March and early April. And insufficient rainfall has also been forecast um, during the rainy season for most of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And this is for the third year in a row. So in parts of Kenya, for example, which are, you know, in central Kenya, uh, which are suffering from drought, there are concerns of... uh, conflict between herders and farmers over resources, you know, water, pasture. And uh, when you look at Ethiopia as well, uh, the inflation rate is currently about 35%. And uh, food prices have also skyrocketed. And like Tunisia as well, we've seen um, unemployment reach some new record levels. And uh, I think the sort of living conditions have obviously not improved uh, because of fuel prices and uh, food prices as well. And as a result, many bakeries, bakeries have shut down and uh, we've seen long lines around uh, fuel stations uh, in places like Sudan where we've seen, uh, well, there has been a reported rise in crime in uh, Khartoum. And I think 
as living conditions worsen, uh, more people will be pushed towards desperation. And, and I think, you know, something like a rise in crime is something that we'll see much more of, uh, not just in Sudan, but in other uh, regions uh, and countries around the world, really. Um, yeah, you mentioned conflict and pushing towards conflict. And like an interesting example, it's not the same, and I'm not going to claim that it is the same, but is an example from Central Asia is on the border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, which is notoriously quite a hostile border these days with um, small clashes between border forces becoming quite regular these days. But what's often not known about these clashes is that they are generally speaking over water resources and agricultural uh, land. And one of the issues with these clashes is that they take place in a border region that's, as with many disputed borders, is uh, very poorly demarcated. So not only that, it traverses some of the best farmland in the area. So I, I suspect as more pressure is put on the, food, the domestic food production systems, Issues, seemingly small issues such as possession over small areas of farmland may become very significant security threats. And in a context such as Central Asia or Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, where there's pre-existing conflict there already between the two over water resources and farmland, it's not hard to see how both sides may be pushed to a more confrontational stance on this border when it comes to disputes over farmland, even if it's a small... And a lot of these disputes do start over very small issues. As you said, with your example, between clashes between uh, agricultural communities... In Central Asia, it's often between agricultural communities and it's often over ownership of quite small areas of land when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. But then when you see how important this land is, it makes a lot of sense. So I think the push, you also mentioned crime, so I think this push towards insecurity, both military and uh, criminal insecurity, I think is a, as almost a direct link. I think it goes almost goes without saying, doesn't it? It's, but it's quite, a, it's quite a broad link, but it's certainly, a, certainly something that pretty much every analyst is predicting, I think. Yeah, that's also one of my worries for Latin America, where... So the socioeconomic conditions that lead to uh, crime and migration will only become worse. Um, you know, you always see whenever, even during the pandemic, but also during like natural disasters, you always see these um, food aid packages with cartel or drug bosses mm. on, on top of them because whether it's like cartels in Mexico or guerrillas in Colombia or gangs in Haiti, they always try to take advantage of the poorest of society or the most vulnerable for recruitment and for, for influence. So that's definitely one of my uh, concerns that it will just fuel not only, not only the crime organizations, but also it will just push people to, to go towards illegal activities like growing illegal crops or illegal mining, stuff like that. Um, one example um, that happened like in 2010 in Mexico, there was a really steep hike in fuel prices and it led to a whole new criminal econ economy around uh, fuel theft. So yeah, it started small scale, but these organizations have grown to like proper, uh, proper organized groups where uh, they usually use corrupt officials within the state-owned oil companies to, to find the, the weak spots in the pipelines. Uh, or where to hijack like convoys of fuel fuel tankers. Um, so, it, yeah, in Mexico it's called huachicoleo, or the guys who do it is huachicoleros, and it's become like not only a massive economy, but also massive criminal activity, but also like there's also already this whole cult of a baby Jesus with the fuel tank, and, and <laughs> it's grown like, Tremendously, and if you see uh, a graph with the prices of fuel and the t and the, the amount of 
fuel theft that's being recorded, it's like one-on-one. So the price of fuel directly impacts that type of uh, fuel theft that's going on across the country. It's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I think there's been a, a rise in smuggling and fuel smuggling, uh, I think between Guinea and Guinea-Bissau and Guinea and Mali as well. Uh, and I think one thing that we have to pay attention to as well is how what sort of prices uh, fuel is sold at in these countries. You know? mm. So in Guinea, for example, it's subsidized. And if uh, it's not subsidized in you know, countries neighboring Guinea, um, or even beyond, then I think we'll see an increase in fuel smuggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to humanitarian organizations and IDPs, you know, I think we, if if we see, like, certainly in the long term and short term, um, if we see conflict really sort of spread and we see IDPs increase and humanitarian organizations can't meet, uh, you know, their needs, then there's a risk that uh, uh, these, you know, terrorist organizations, for example, or insurgent groups, um, they could sort of uh, their ranks could really rapidly expand, um, or we could also see many IDPs just go back to you know their, their villages and end up paying a tax to uh, these sort of groups, and this could also have an impact you know on how on the security side of it because then we could see these groups of become more powerful. I'm not sure if you see any of that in the, the Middle East. I think in the Middle East despite a lot of conflict, the rule of government has typically been a bit stronger than some of the countries you're talking about. So as a result, it's often, they're often taking place in the context of a civil war where both the rebels and the government forces are, they have relative control over their their own territory, whereas I think there's obviously similarities. And yes, there's certainly criminal groups who are taking advantage. But I think in a lot of cases as well, a lot of these criminal groups are actually in some way affiliated with government forces, particularly with fuel, less so with food from um, from open source reporting, although you do see it, I think fuel is probably the most common. You see a lot of militias affiliated with governments or affiliated with rebel forces, whatever it may be, depends on the country. Uh, a lot of these are heavily involved in fuel trafficking now, especially in Syria, actually, to bring a new example into it. And between Syria and Lebanon on the border, there's a huge amount of fuel trafficking and, and drugs trafficking, but in the context of this podcast, mostly fuel trafficking. So, yes, I think it does exist. And yes, I think as these resources dwindle, suddenly the possession of these resources makes you so much more powerful than before. So, yeah, I think it's it's natural to say, I think governments in the, along this pattern may continue to use these militias, use this influence, or even use their own forces to, um, I guess, monopolise control over the resources as well. So, Aaron, you mentioned uh, previously how uh, you, you've seen, you know, you've observed a sort of a shift in voting patterns. Um but have you seen any other, you know, have you seen strikes or anti-government protests being driven by the cost of living? Um, yeah, like I said, they were, they were already there before before even the pandemic happened. So there were already protests in Brazil uh, against hunger. Um, just in general, like uh, poverty has been increasing in most countries in Latin America. So there have been uh, protests before this. But now, um, especially with the rising fuel prices, that kicked off like uh, a few new nationwide protests so we had one in peru um now in ecuador as well uh we often see is uh in relation to if if it's directly related to fuel prices and and inflation um the first ones to kick it off are usually the truck drivers and there's there's a strong civil society in most uh, countries in latin america but the trucker unions are particularly powerful because many of these countries they rely on like certain highways they don't have many train links and everything for transport so 
uh, these structure units are very powerful and they can just, with a few blockades here and there, they can just gridlock entire economies. So I've, I've already seen that in Peru, but I expect that that will be a major issue where once um, there is some sort of civil unrest, you'll get just compa- compounding problems because of these blockades. So I'll speak about, I'll come back to Central Asia for this, because I think, again, it provides a good example of um, what do we think is going to happen next. And for Central Asia at the moment, it's pretty hard to tell because, again, we mentioned I mentioned earlier that Kazakhstan very much remains a central, the centre of production, uh, of uh, grain exports in, um, in Central Asia, in that Kazakhstan, of course, in, um, takes its grain from Russia, imports its grain from Russia, and then exports its domestically produced grain to Central Asia. So Kazakhstan is expected to announce recently whether it's going to continue restrictions on grain exports to, to its Central Asian neighbours, and I think this will largely depend on how well its own harvest goes. So if it's had a poor harvest, as it has in previous years, my suspicion would be, I can't say for certain, but my suspicion would be that they husband their resources and they perhaps continue restrictions on grain exports to Central Asia. This would be, I, th- I think, would be quite catastrophic for uh, the rest of the Central Asia region, but uh, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to exactly to what extent, you know, this, this may be a problem later in our next next part and when we talk about any solutions we are seeing. But I think the Central Asia region as a whole, I think it's hard to gauge exactly what we could see happening. But I think one of the, the, to answer the question of this section is what could we see happen and where protest, as you guys mentioned, is, is such a major issue. And in Central Asia, protest is tricky because all five Central Asian states are manned by some way, shape or form an authoritarian government where protest is heavily restricted or in some cases just outright banned. However, with that said, we saw recently in Kazakhstan, for example, of January this year, we saw major protests which actually led to the overthrow of um, Nazarbayev and the replacement of Takayev. So we've seen protests in Kazakhstan. We've seen in the past, we've seen protests in places like Kyrgyzstan as well. So... There's definitely, there is definitely protest here. There is a history of protest, and these protests have generally often been related to living conditions as well. So what could we see happening where? I think protest would be the main answer to that for the Central Asia region. I think don't be fooled by the authoritarian nature and the, the strict control they have on protest, and because it doesn't, that doesn't mean that people don't want to protest. It just means that a lot of the time they can't. It's heavy suppression on groups like activists, for example, and organisers of protests. As for Lebanon, again, the other example I mentioned earlier, Lebanon's already seen extensive protests, as, again, similar to ones that you guys have mentioned already. So a lot of, uh, a lot of road blockades, for example, because they know that road blockades generally have the biggest impact in a time when logistics is so key, mm-hmm. trying to get fuel resources around. Huge amount of road blockades in, uh, in Lebanon, and these tend to they generally are focused around Beirut, but we see them across the whole country too. And one of the common themes of this is that they... they there's a general anti-government feel to them as well, but in some cases, particularly in the South, we've seen a few protests that have been uh, anti-Hezbollah as well, not necessarily ideologically, but they just see them as complicit in the corruption that's led to this situation in the first place. <coughs> so moving on to our third and final part then, and that is what are governments in, in these regions doing to respond to the issue? So I'll start us off with this one, and again, going back to Central Asia, which is the example I've been using throughout so in Central Asia, we mentioned earlier, it depends on the Kazakh harvest. So it's hard to predict exactly what countries like Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan are going to do in response because they're themselves waiting to see what uh, what Kazakhstan decides to do with its own ex- exports of grain, whether it decides to restrict them or allow them to increase. So as I'm sure a lot of other countries are doing, they're seeing, especially in Europe, is in the news a lot now, is they're going to try and diversify their, their uh, albeit Europe's for energy, they're going to try and diversify where they're getting their food from. So this may be in the form of simply getting cash loans from other countries to help them buy more food or actual imports of food itself, imports of grain or other food products. 
So I think this will be the primary short-term fix would be the, the direct the direct imports of these food into, into the Central Asia region. But one other quite worrying trend that I've noticed in reporting from Central Asia is the government narrative. And in a few cases now, I've seen government ministries or the governments themselves claiming that they have plenty of food and stockpiles. Not necessarily denying that there's an issue. They do admit that there's an issue, but they're very much trying to stop panic buying, trying to stop panicking in general trying to portray themselves as we're in the control we have more than however many days worth of uh, reserves left in the stocks and then there's been plenty of reporting where locals from the ground locals from the, like uh, farmers agricultural workers whatever it may be have been interviewed and pretty much all of them appear to be disputing these claims that there is enough food in stock parts all of them seem to be saying no we're not getting enough grain we're not getting enough support from the government right now despite the government saying no we're, we're, we're fine we're supporting the farmers everywhere they need so this makes this section really hard to analyze as an analyst. Obviously, it's our job to do this, but it's an element of the government stats that are being given are often not necessarily outright lying, but they are often in some way embellished or it, mm. perhaps they're not telling the full story. And it's quite an interesting thing. And I think as a result, I can't help but wonder, are these authoritarian Central Asian governments just going to ignore a lot of the worst of the problem? Are they going to try and power through these issues? Are they going to try and just hope that social unrest doesn't lead to any overthrow? whilst keeping people in a state where there's simply not enough food. And I think it's it's a it's possible, especially with the narrative now being uh being almost to ignore the true extent of the issue. But again, it's hard to gauge with Central Asian governments. The narratives often don't reflect what they're actually doing. So this is something that I'll be keeping on myself going forwards. I do feel a bit similar about like for for example, even in Europe, mm. the communication is I mean, I find for example German Germany's uh Minister of Economy and Climate does a very good job. He has like regular updates about uh, where, how much gas is being stored for the winter, uh, what's the deal with uh, um, where they're getting their gas from. But I get very little of these updates from other governments. Like during the pandemic, every week we would know where we stand Mm. and you get an update. And at least it was communicated. And Mm -hmm. I think now the communication from a lot of governments, even here, in Europe is lacking. And so I think if there would be better communication about, you know, there is an issue, we're going to have to make sacrifices, even if it's not nice. So even if it's not nice, like for example, in Germany, um, they're now going back to coal powered power plants and um, they are talking about reducing uh, industrial activity that relies on natural gas, which are not, which is not good news, but at least, you know, the public gets a sense of what's going on. And I feel like if these, if this is all communicated more clearly, the expectations will be managed better and that will avoid some certain frustration in society that can lead to, to a civil unrest. So I do think communication is part of a solution in preventing things from getting worse. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Egypt, we've seen, uh, you know, with, uh, with bread uh, heavily subsidized, uh, there are concerns around social stability. So we've seen uh, in Egypt... Uh, devalue their currency, and they're also seeking a loan from the IMF. Uh, and I think with uh, countries in the Gulf, uh, you know, they recognize sort of the, the geopolitical sort of uh, importance of Egypt. They've also uh, they're also ch- also channeling a, a large amount amount of money to sort of stave off any you know, social stability. Um, but we're also seeing Egypt look at internal solutions uh, to address high grain prices. Uh, so we've seen these solutions sort of include more efficient farming techniques. Uh, and in Ethiopia too, uh, 
they are looking to incre- increase uh, wheat production by about 70% in 2022. Uh, and although the US have warned that this is uh, sort of an unrealistic or unachievable sort of target, uh, the government have maintained that uh, irrigation-based farming and cluster farming sort of technologies, you know, where smallholders pool their sort of resources together uh, to purchase equipment and sort of boost farming. Uh, I think these are, uh, you know, this is what the country is really focusing on. Uh, but we've also seen action being taken against, uh, you know, speculation as well of products. So I think in Cameroon, there was a case where the government really controlled, uh, you know, speculation. I think it was around the construction industry in in, in an area of Cameroon, uh, and this this these sort of actions were only were enforced, I think, really well in some places, but because they were enforced so un, unevenly, uh, we saw lots of people come in, you know, from uh, areas around where they were enforced to, you know, buy these construction materials. Uh, and this led to shortages uh, in that town, uh, and so, uh, and and that led to sort of you know communal tension, not not necessarily between communities, but also but just general anger around uh, you know how the government has sort of managed the crisis in in some areas. So I think if any action is taken by the government and it has to be sort of taken evenly, uh, you know across across the country, otherwise we'll see tension around around that as well cheers Raj so it sounds like uh I would say those are quite long-term solutions I guess and I think one probably one of the most pressing concerns particularly for governments that perhaps aren't particularly popular right now is uh short term because at the end of the day a lot of them are worried that they might not survive as a government long enough to even see the, these long-term plans come into fruition so something that a few examples that I've seen for example both in Lebanon and Central Asia the two examples I'm using today are governments attempting to crack down on people hoarding goods and this has been both popular and unpopular because it's popular with people who will be buying the goods, but the people that are selling the goods are very much forced into a corner here. So they 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 claim that they can't make a living without raising the price of goods or in some cases without selling them at black market rates. And the issue is they'll be selling these goods. If they're selling them at black market rates, yes, they're making a huge amount more money from it, but they also claim that they're buying them at black market rates. So as a result of the breaking even, whereas the government is forcing, uh, is, is in some cases trying to, send out patrols to check to randomly check stores for example looking for any stores that have um forced up prices artificially and this i'm pretty dubious about how effective this will be i think at the end of the day this very much just addresses one of the one of the symptoms which is at the very end of this long chain of consequences it's not really dealing with the cause of the problem at all but obviously that's that's what you expect from a short-term fix but uh with it being sort of somewhat popular, somewhat unpopular as well, I really I think it's a it's a risky strategy to take if they're going to rely on it. But it's been one that we've seen in Central Asia in particular quite consistently, especially in Turkmenistan, where they've um, where Turkmenistan's really struggled with food prices. But again, with Turkmenistan having been in a situation with food shortages for quite some time now, and we haven't really seen any success from strategies such as forcing shopkeepers to sell at a certain rate. That's what I mean by saying I personally don't think these are a sufficient fix. I don't think they're a sufficient short-term fix. What we mentioned earlier, actually, that some states are looking to try and buy, uh, try and buy wheat, uh, grain, or food products, whatever it may be, fuel, short-term. So they're looking to maybe buy one-off payments, one-off uh, shipments, one-off imports, just to try and ease the situation until they can maybe figure out what's going on. Because at the end of the day, I think. Yes, government should be communicating, but I think in many cases they don't know themselves where what's going to be happening in a month. Because if 
the war in Ukraine ends in a week's time, which doesn't look like it will, but if, let's say hypothetically, if it were to end very soon, very suddenly, the whole situation would change again. So these short-term fixes may at least buy the government some time. But I personally think there's going to be a big gap between these short-term fixes if they do work, so such as importing grain, and these long-term fixes starting to come into fruition, starting yeah. to show some benefit. I think there's going to be quite a big gap between these two things happening. Yeah. And that's going to be a very difficult period for them. I think in, in terms of solutions, um, private enterprises, uh, you know, they should also be thinking about uh, their corporate social responsibility and how, you know, they could probably act to maybe alleviate the cost of living crisis in areas that they operate because otherwise, you know, they might also see uh, increased protest activity, which disrupts their operations, which in turn will, you know, of course, disrupt uh, government revenues. Uh, you know, if we talk about mining companies, for example. Yeah, I think ultimately, especially in remote areas, rural areas in developing countries as well, at times of increased stress, these companies will either be associated with the government itself or with uh, foreign influence. So whether they're affiliated with the government or not, these companies, it may be very much within their interest, I guess, to try and keep the area around them stable. And if that means directly becoming involved in sort of ways to alleviate the issues. And sure, I think that's a, a solution that I think we might see coming up more and more. So we've spoken about a lot today. So I just want to go through everything we've spoken and just summarise because we, we use three talking points. I just want to summarise what we came, the conclusions that we came to with each one. So our first, uh, our first talking point was what countries or regions do you think would be particularly hard hit? Obviously, I mentioned Central Asia and Lebanon. Farage, you mentioned the Horn of Africa as being an area which you think is particularly is going to be particularly hard hit. And Aaron, you spoke more about a political transition in the Americas region as a whole. And I, I want to say here, that doesn't mean that we think that these that other regions are going to be perhaps not hard hit. They, it seems pretty guaranteed that all regions are going to be hard hit. We just felt that these were useful uh, useful examples for the sake of this for the sake of this podcast. Our second se- section was uh, what do we think will happen and where. And in this, I think we all pretty much had the same examples. We all pretty much had the same ideas and that insecurity, whether that be military or in the form of protest, increased crime is pretty much a given. I think we've seen in the past with similar similar situations such as this, increased crime rates, especially with petty crime. Uh, You're talking about uh, criminal groups seizing control of of things such as fuel fuel shipments or food or aid donations, stuff like that, as well as... um, as well as increasingly fragile uh, governments, which even if they're authoritarian, are going to start thinking twice perhaps about how how can we maybe appease uh, protesters rather than simply putting them down at a time when they're under a lot of pressure. And finally, we were looking at what solutions, what measures are governments bringing in to try and deal with these issues. And we spoke sort of about short-term and long-term. And I think we can agree that these short-term uh, short-term fixes will have, you know, some in some of them very limited success, some of them perhaps more successful than others, but ultimately they are still just short-term. And these long-term fixes have generally just been put in place now in response, almost like a knee-jerk reaction. So we think there's going to be a bit of a gap between these short-term fixes coming in and these long-term fixes paying off. And I think that's going to be a very challenging period for governments and for people alike. All good? Yes. So from the perspective of governments, at the end of the day, there's no real understanding right now as to how long this crisis is going to go on for, how long food price, fuel and food, fuel and food is going to be short for. Yes, there's been, uh, there's been, as we mentioned, there's been plans for these long-term fixes, such as diversification of energy and food supplies, whether this be 
creating nuclear, uh, becoming more reliant on nuclear power, and especially in Europe where this is being discussed, or importing food from different sources. But again, these are generally long-term fixes that will take a long time to bring about. And these short-term fixes, again, there's it, no secret that these aren't going to last forever. Even if it's the most successful short-term fix, it is ultimately still just a short-term fix. So I suspect what we're going to see is a gap between these short-term fixes perhaps wearing off as their impact starts to, starts to decline and when these long-term impacts start to actually come into place. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these long-term impacts have been brought about as a knee-jerk reaction to this crisis. And the crisis, it should be said, was already somewhat ongoing before Russia invaded Ukraine. This war in, uh, this war in Ukraine has made what was already a quite bad situation substantially worse, and it's been very hard felt. So there's been this catalyst that's made it worse. We don't know when this war is going to end. And even if the war does end at some point soon there will still be the issue of the damage that was done. And also, there will still be the issue of the fact that there was inflation before the war started, let alone after. So I think there's this period in between these short-term fixes coming up, uh, wearing off and these long-term ones kicking in, regardless of whether the war ends or not, the war in Ukraine ends or not. There's this period where governments are very vulnerable, where there doesn't seem to be any planning right now as to how exactly they're going to survive and how exactly they're going to get through that period. Obviously, we've spoken quite generally today. This is a very general topic. So we've tried to provide a bit of a focus to this podcast by focusing on a couple of um, of case studies from around the world, some geographical case studies, some regional case studies. However, if you if you feel like you want a bit more information after listening to us today, then we have a report on our website about the global food crisis. And as I mentioned earlier, we've also got some content coming out onto our channels about the crisis in Sri Lanka in particular. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about what we do here at Intelligence Fusion or find out about the data that supports our analysis, then don't hesitate to reach out to a member of our team. You'll find a link to get in touch in the description of this episode.